Welcome to Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. I have with me Santosh here in Houston to discuss an important subject, the future of oil. Uh, Santosh is President and Chief Executive Officer of Lone Star Group. He's also associated with various professional bodies, including as an advisor to the Board of Petroleum Equipment and Services Association. Welcome, Santosh. Uh, Mahesh, thank you for having me. Uh, this is clearly a fun topic. Um, you know, oil is dear to my heart, not just because that's how I make money personally, but it, it drives engines, it drives cars, which I'm a really big fan of. And I'm thinking you're going to tell me that that's going to disappear soon. It looks like for now. <laughs> so, uh, Santosh, in the uh, past few episodes, uh, we have been talking about the impact of distraction and destruction around us yeah. in, in, in the way we do business, the business models. And one peculiar thing we found out that the distraction industry, we are calling it an industry, industry uh, distraction is the new oil looks like where the distraction industry, when I say Facebook, LinkedIn, Google, that kind of companies right. are being rewarded more than the oil by the markets. Yep. If you look at it in terms of the top companies were market cap. Right. Now, that's one side that distraction industry is getting rewarded. But let's look at the oil industry itself. What's happening there? What we're seeing is it itself is going through a disruption of, it, of its own. There is a lot of narrative about increased role of renewable energy, yep. impact of electrical vehicles, self-driving self vehicles on oil. Yep. And on top of it, the supply-demand equation along with the usage points is changing dramatically. Now, all of these, to be very frank, indicate a hard time for oil. Yep. And especially with the focus on environmental issues and clean energy, the question is, is it the end of oil? Now, when I talk about renewable energy, which are environmentally friendly, as, as we call it, one could easily say that oil is also a renewable energy. The only point is it just takes longer time to renew. <laughs> That's right, Mahesh. It takes millions of years for That's oil true. to recycle, right? <laughs> so, well, it's an interesting question about is it the end of oil, right? I mean, uh, clearly as somebody that uh, is in the oil and gas space, um, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about this. Um, the, the existence, the future of my own business yeah. um, is dependent on, you know, some level of um, oil field activity, right? Mm -hmm. Unless, unless I, you know, it might force me to completely uh, disrupt myself mm -hmm. to, to be able to keep our business running, right? But let's talk, let's think about the geopolitics of oil, right? I mean, uh, you know, that's important, right? That the disruption in geopolitics of oil, uh, it will definitely create a new equation right. what's going to happen, yeah. Right. So, you know, if you, if you go back um, to, to the, the history of the world, um, you know, we don't have to go back very far. We can go back to the um, early 20th century, right? That's, uh, you know, since we're talking about oil, oil really didn't take prominence uh, as an energy source uh, till the early 20th century. Uh, but since the early 20th century, oil has been a dominant source of energy for lots of reasons. Uh, and given that uh, war machines are powered by energy. Right. Uh, the, the, the geopolitics of supply, of transportation, of refining, and of consumption have been foremost in the minds of all great planners, including Hitler. Um, you know, we, we know, for instance, that 
uh, in the in 1940, uh, both the Royal Air Force and the uh, uh, U.S. Air Force uh, had already made plans to understand Hitler's supply chain when it comes to oil. Uh, you know, he was he invaded uh, Romania and Norway to secure his source of energy, and um, uh, both the RAF and the U.S. Air Force went after his sources of energy. Uh, to, to ensure that we got control of that game, that that theater was in the Allied hands and not in the uh, German hands. Mm. Right. And if you look at, at the same time, in the early 20th century, what was happening in U.S.? Correct. Almost yeah. the same situation. And if you look at California in, uh, in early 1900s, 1910 or something, uh, the South California, it was a boom era for oil as was for the gold in north right and as it goes uh, the american navy was worried at that time uh, about its dependence on the coal lines right coal supply lines which were very insecure right and that's the time they commissioned its first oil fire destroyer right as the history goes and uh, also usa created its first naval petroleum reserve right to guarantee supplies of oil in the event of an international crisis, yeah, that's some forward-looking thinking. Yeah. So, 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 so to geek out here for a little bit, right? I mean, if you think about the amount of energy that is stored in a molecule of oil uh -huh. versus a molecule of coal, uh -huh. um, and the ability to move that that stored energy around the world where you need it, oil was clearly a lot better way of of securing your energy supply yeah. than coal was. Uh, so yes, the, the U.S. Navy had a really good point. You know? yeah. Now, over the years, we've also um, understood that there is more power stored in atoms and that nuclear power is probably even better, more reliable source. But, you know, as you know, nuclear power plants are not easy to manufacture, not easy to control. So, you know, yeah, the great war machines, the big aircraft carriers, the, the big submarines are powered by nuclear. But even today, oil is generally what drives war machines. And your point about the economy, right? Mm -hmm. The U.S. economy was also going through, you know, particularly after the Great Depression. You know, Great Depression, the, the you know, late 20s, early 30s was difficult. But as we were getting into Second World War and... Mm -hmm as U.S. was becoming a supplier of armaments mm -hmm. uh, to, uh, to Churchill during Second mm -hmm. World War, um, you know, the U.S. realized that it also needs a real reliable and potentially portable source of energy. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, you know, the, the oil embargo uh, later thought mm -hmm. was a really valuable lesson that as long as we were not energy independent, and we were sourcing energy out of the Middle East that we had to guarantee that those supply chains were protected uh, by military needs if necessary. Ah. So basically then the geopolitics of energy became so prominent Yes. for I think how many years now as you look back from, say from early 1900 when it started 1910 almost for 100 years. Absolutely. So yeah. it was so the impact of energy flow was immense on the power and influence of nations. Yeah, and if you if you think about power in terms of, you know, the the, the oil producing nations versus the oil consuming nations, right? Right. So till recently uh, the US uh, was an oil net consuming nation, not mm. a ne net producing nation. Um, and and guess what? You know, we went to war in Iraq. To, mm -hmm. to ensure that our supply, supply of energy secure. was secure. Yeah. We put two fleets yeah. in the Persian Gulf yeah. to ensure, you know, in Qatar and in Bahrain to ensure yeah. that 
uh, you know, on the other side of the strait, yeah. uh, the Strait of Hormuz, that Iran was not going to be the one exerting influence, that we were the one that had power in the straits. Yeah, so the, this is serious stuff. Trillions of dollars You're spent on securing right. supply, yeah. right? So basically, all the efforts in, 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 in 20th century were focused on securing the oil supplies, right. safeguarding its shipment, right. stopping enemies from getting or keeping hold of it, right. and monopolize it, if, if possibly, so that you, are, you have power with right. that. Now, if you look at even a country like U.S. had a scare. See, with the oil embargo in 1973, U.S. realized that... Uh, one of their weaknesses is dependence on imported oil. Right. And uh, as far as uh, the Carter uh, Doctrine came up, yep. that also yep. uh, shows how serious U.S. was about that weakness, which clearly asserted the United States' right, right. to use military force to protect its uh, strategic interests right. in Middle East, right. just in a region, right. to make sure there is a stable supply of oil. Yeah. So what's happening is, let, let's move on into... Well, currently what's happening, sure. uh, uh, Santosh. So there are three very important developments which have happened. One is America, shale revolution. Second, China. Yep. Trying to move from energy intensive economy to service led one. Yep. Third, the environmental piece. Yep. Which is the Paris Agreement of 2015 and the environment. Sure, sure. So, you know, if you take them, uh, you know, one at a time, right? Um, uh, because of the scare and because the U.S. realized that its dependence on, um, you know, sometimes state actors uh, for its own energy uh, needs uh, was likely not going to be reliable because, you know, as you know, through the Arab Spring, mm -hmm. uh, through, uh, through turmoil in the Middle East, mm -hmm. uh, through challenges in Venezuela, mm -hmm. uh, through, you know, um, you know, corruption and other economic uh, issues in Brazil, mm -hmm. um, we realize that we need our own energy security, right? I mean, just, you know, within the last 10 years, you know, mm -hmm. from, say, 2007, you know, we didn't make a drop of oil, I believe, pre-2007 through shale, right? So, something like 4 million barrels a day worth mm -hmm. of um, oil production in the U.S. Um, has happened just in the last 10 years, all because of shale play, right? Mm -hmm. Now, there are some benefits to shale. You know, one is it's sweeter oil. The, the bet you place on an average shale well right. is smaller than an average heavy oil well, say, mm -hmm. in Venezuela or offshore. Um, you know, China, you know, China is an altogether interesting topic in itself. I'm sure you can have a few radio shows just on China, right? True, we yeah. have one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but China, uh, you know, has realized that its economy, for it to continue to grow at the pace that it has enjoyed, mm. uh, can't just solely rely on being uh, the breadbasket, so to speak, you know, the manufacturing center of the world that it needs to develop its own economy. And mm -hmm. its own economy would mean, uh, you know, the evolution, for instance, that the U.S. went through mm -hmm. from, you know, mostly a manufacturing country mm -hmm. to uh, today, mostly a service-oriented business mm -hmm. or service-oriented country. So as China does that, and, you know, uh, so I was recently in Ningbo, uh, mm -hmm. which, is, uh, uh, which is near Shanghai. Uh, they're getting very serious, not just about the service economy, but also about uh, you know the green elements that you talked about, about mm -hmm. environment, right? Mm -hmm. They're shutting down manufacturing facilities for mm -hmm. environmental violations, mm -hmm. which would never have happened five years ago. So, uh, you know, China is both, um, you know, it's it's um, reduceing its dependence on energy inten intensive, uh, you know, GDP growth, uh, and it's also getting more environmentally friendly. So, um, yeah, I think I think all three factors are going to cause, yeah. um, you know, um, 
uh, you know, probably going to put negative pressure on oil growth. Yeah. In fact, I think it's going to mean that, uh, uh, you know, consumption is going to decline and probably by big numbers. And supply is side is going up. <laughs> supply side is going up, yeah. clearly, right? So does it mean the end of oil? Mm. Uh, I don't know. I'm sure it's a lot more complex than a simple equation. Exactly. But I it will exert yeah. some geopolitical pressures. But if you look at it, it could be a more peaceful and stable geopolitical situation with American self-reliance uh, on oil, because they have more now, and Chinese self-restraint, and the environment issues coming to the fore and people playing to it. Sure. So, you know, that's that's a positive way yeah. to look at it. You know, right. But I also worry about, um, you know, when, when you're used to power and uh -huh. you lose it, uh, you tend to do some crazy stuff. Correct. Right? Correct. The so social implications. Social implications, it. right? Yeah. I mean, if you think about Saudi as an example, right? Yeah. More than 40% of their revenues come from the sale of oil, right? Mm -hmm. And they have social contracts with their, mm -hmm. uh, with their people about, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, um, everything from free healthcare to mm -hmm. low-cost uh, gasoline. Mm -hmm. uh, that would be highly disrupted mm -hmm. if Saudis can't make money anymore from oil. Right. Kuwait's an equally good example, right? I mean, more yeah. than half of Kuwait's yeah. Um, you know, social expenditure comes from the sale Cancel of oil. Money. And that's very important. And if you look at it, the energy and democratization, right. which will come, a democratization, which will come with energy if you go into renewables, because as power generation becomes more dispersed, yeah. the renewables, regions may become more self-sufficient in energy. And that's energy democratization. But, but it can happen when this transition is happening. There could be... Uh, a different kind of geopolitical friction. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I don't think it will be a peaceful transition because yeah. people are going to want to hang on to power, right? Can you imagine yeah. uh, Putin giving up the revenues uh, from, from the sale of oil in Russia, yeah. right? Uh, can you imagine what uh, what's going to happen in Venezuela yeah. when there is no need for oil anymore, right? And Venezuela, for instance, is a bad example mm. of not diversifying. They're mm. actually... Um, you know, getting to a point where their only source of income is oil, mm -hmm. and you know, and with 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 the with the mm -hmm. government in shambles and mm -hmm. Pedavesa, uh not producing anywhere near the amount of oil that was being mm -hmm. produced, that country is going to react in a really negative way, yeah. and their neighbors aren't going to be pleased about how I believe uh, yeah. Venezuela is going to end up. You're right, because the countries who have relied for a long time and without uh, just betting on oil, right. not reforming their economies right. and just depending on fossil fuel reserves, they could be clear losers here. Yep. And the politics of oil, geopolitics can become geopolitics of renewables. Right. Because and now if you see uh, different than past, where the traditional energy system, the main constraint was scarcity. Yep. Somebody has, others didn't have. Right. Now with abundant renewables, it will become uh, the variability of renewals, how do you combine them? Sure. And the geopolitics can take a very different shape instead of shipping routes that you're playing around grids now. Right, exactly. What we saw in Russia when when Ukraine um, uh, acted on the grid yep. once Russia annexed Crimea. Yep, you know? exactly. Now, there could be a silver lining. I mean, there is this thing called the curse of natural resources. Right. You know, we know many countries, uh, particularly in Africa, but not limited to Africa, that that rely heavily on oil tend mm -hmm. to get corrupt very quickly, right? Yeah. Where, but the more diversified an economy, mm -hmm. um, the, uh, the the better chance it has at becoming a first world country. So there yeah. are, you know, I'm sure I'm sure there'll be growth in areas, you know, West African countries that that generally, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, had dictators who would likely become more democracies and you know, in first world yeah. countries. So there is there is hope. Uh, the question is, you know, um, how are people in power going to react? 
right? Mm -hmm. The ones that currently control the energy sources, how are they going to react? Mm -hmm. uh, if they react in a positive manner, it could be great. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, I'm hopeful many countries will, mm -hmm. but then I'm sure there are going to be countries that aren't going to be happy with the fact yeah. that their main source of income is gone. Right. And yeah. now if you look at it, it's, it's, it's a very strange situation. It used to be geopolitics of oil. Now you can say geopolitics of renewable. Right. But, you know, uh, now there will be a, a, a race that which country can produce most energy of its own and which has the best technology. Right. For renewables, you need the technology. Right. And uh, uh, there will be issues for people who do not embrace the clean energy transition right. because the environmental issues will be hurting them. So now we have to see what's going to happen. Is it the geopolitics of oil, geopolitics of renewables, or it would be just the clear geopolitics of energy, right. which encompasses all of it. And like in US, yep. you have to look at the geopolitics of energy because the political parties in US are right. divided and it's divided between fossil fuel fundamentalists, you can call them Republicans, <laughs> and yep. the clean energy enthusiasts, you can call them Democrats. Right. Now They can't agree. And what is the best way forward for the economy and climate? The solution lies somewhere in between. Solution lies somewhere with the technology. So the geopolitics of oil has to stay wherever it is. Geopolitics of renewable, you have to move beyond it. How do you play the geopolitics of a combined form of energy yep. and use it for betterment of humanity instead of driving only pure power out of it? Right. You know, I think I think you know my my, my position about that. Right. You could call me that that Republican because yeah. I am. Uh, however, as a Republican, I'm also a free market thinker, mm -hmm. right? And in the end, it's going to come down to the price of energy. So the good yeah. news exactly. is the price of energy is going to fall dramatically through this process. Right. For, so for anyone that consumes power, yeah. that consumes energy, uh, it's, it's very good news. Uh, bad news is that as the price of energy falls, price of oil is going to fall as well, ah. right? So. Um, you know, what is your motivation mm -hmm. to switch to a more expensive renewable mm -hmm. uh, if the price of oil is going yeah, to be down to the right. $25 range? Yeah, that will be right. a tough one. Right. I think we're going to address this in our next segment, okay. uh, Santosh. We'll take a quick short break here. on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Welcome back. You're listening to Global Business with Mahesh Yoshi. Uh, we are discussing with Santosh about the future of oil. So Santosh, continuing our discussion, whenever the oil comes into discussion, you can't avoid the Saudis. 
So my question here is, can the, can the kingdom of oil survive? I call it the Saudi dilemma. What should they do? You know, it's, it's, it's a very interesting one. So I was just in Saudi Arabia in, in December uh, to attend a conference that they call ICTVA, In Kingdom Total Value Add. Uh, I think it came about as a result of uh, Prince Mohammed bin Salman's uh, vision uh, for Saudi. I think they call it the Saudi 2030 vision. True. And the Saudi 2030 vision is all about reducing reliance on oil, mm -hmm. uh, diversifying into um, areas that in the past were almost an anathema for them, right? Um, they, he, he's talking about uh, tourism, for example, mm -hmm. recreation as mm -hmm. industries, right? And probably learning lessons from Dubai mm -hmm. around recreation, from the UAE, Dubai, Abu Dhabi in particular, uh, about recreation, uh, allowing women to drive, uh, allowing women taxi drivers, right? Which is, you know, strange for me. I've been it's visiting Saudi. It's an achievement. It, yeah. um, and and they've, they've started opening uh, cinema theaters, which were banned for many, many years. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I think it's real. You know, the, the geopolitics of, um, you know, uh, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, as he is uh, fondly called, of MBS, um, you know, staging a coup, uh, replacing the, the crown prince with himself, um, readying Saudi uh, for a new generation. Um, I think um, it's, it's pretty clear just based on mm -hmm. public statements and based on what I've seen. You know, I've, I've, I saw women without headscarves for the first mm -hmm. time in Saudi in December, which was impossible um, just a year ago. So uh, I believe that the Saudis are taking this real, right? They, they understand that, you know, uh, they are no more the, the largest player on the block, that the U.S. doesn't really need Saudi Arabia's oil. Uh, China is... Uh, beginning to find other sources of oil. In fact, you know, the, the talk is that, you know, that Trump's so-called trade war is likely going to force China to buy excess oil out of the U.S. Mm -hmm. rather than source their oil from Saudi, right? That could help sure. balance the trade deficit. Um, so Saudi is going to be an interesting one. Um, I think generally for the positive, because mm -hmm. there seems to be real on-the-ground momentum. Uh, in terms of the way they're thinking about diversifying and the way that they're acknowledging that by the year 2030, mm -hmm. um, that the, you know their reliance on mm -hmm. uh, oil should disappear and that they should be a much more diversified economy. Mm -hmm. You're right. It looks like Saudi has an ambitious reform agenda, mm -hmm. and uh, the the key here is what should Saudi do? The reform agenda is good if they push the oil prices higher, they can bring back the shale suppliers. Mm -hmm. You know, definitely shale uh, suppliers, the shale industry suffered heavily in U.S. in the collapse of 2014. But with the cut from Saudi and Russia, there's a new life in that sector. Yeah. Because the prices are improving. Now, there's another piece to it. They have added more efficiency into it. Absolutely. The shale guys have made it so damn efficient, they pulled their cost down. So they are, they are much more competitive than they were in 2014 when the oil price was high. Whereas Saudi's oil price, adding the social cost into it, adding the other ambitious agenda, yeah. can allow, cannot allow them to do it or may not make it uh, easy for them. Yeah. Let me put it this way. Yeah. You know, look, your, your question of dilemma is a fantastic one, right? Because there are so many moving parts to this puzzle. There are so True. many moving pieces to this puzzle. Uh, your point about good old style American innovation, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, when, when American companies are forced 
they they will change right mm -hmm. when they're when they're forced to disrupt they usually react through innovation mm -hmm. you know the cost of producing shale oil mm -hmm. is down uh, over 60 percent mm -hmm. I had breakfast with a CEO the other day mm -hmm. uh, and he was telling me that his costs his mm -hmm. lifting costs are down 60 percent from 2014 ah. right making him break even uh, in the 30s, right, 37, 38 dollars a barrel will make him break even. So that's very competitive. As competitive yeah, because oil is trading yeah. at 65 today, right? Mm -hmm. Here's the other dilemma for Saudi, right? You know, clearly, uh, because of their diversification agenda, they want to unload a substantial portion of Saudi Aramco, um, you know, mm. from from kingdom held, from uh, royal family held, to you know, um, publicly listed, publicly traded. Um, clearly, you know, they had very ambitious, I believe it was a $4 trillion expectation of market cap. Um, I think I think it's muted now down to uh, probably $2 billion. Yeah. But it takes $65 to $70 oil, potentially $75 oil, for mm -hmm. them to realize a $2 billion market cap for, uh, sorry, $2 trillion, not $2 trillion, billion, $2 yeah, trillion, right. trillion. market cap for, yeah. for Saudi. Uh, also, the other bit is a delicate, mm -hmm. um, you know, balancing act mm -hmm. of OPEC, Plus, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. usually the plus is Russia, mm -hmm. um, you know, holding their production, um, you know, under tight uh, mm -hmm. quota. Uh, in the past, they have been known not to be good at doing that. Recently, however, you know, I still believe the $65 oil, which it is today, uh, is a result of serious discipline on the part of OPEC, clearly led by Saudi. Uh, and uh, and Russia uh, that's propping up you know um, oil in that in that in that number. Mm. So what do Saudis do? You know, I think I think they're doing all the right things. If they can convince their OPEC partners and Russia to stay to keep oil in the sixty-five, seventy-dollar range mm -hmm. uh, till they unload Aramco, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it seems like they're hitting a few snags. Mm -hmm. You know. Um, um, and I think I think they want to now list it inside Saudi mm -hmm. and not not in London or New York as they they mm -hmm. originally planned. Um, they they have no choice but to make sure that oil stays in the sixty five to seventy range for some period of time, um, you know, um, till till they unload Saudi Aramco um, and they get the funding. You know, what what are they going to do with the two trillion dollars? Right, they're going to put it into this uh, PIF. Yeah, uh, public uh, investment fund, and it's a major issue. If they don't get what you're saying, it's major issue. They have to get the oil price. If they don't get the money, they cannot put in public investment fund. Their reform agenda suffers. Right. So it's a very serious issue for them. On the other end, if they keep at sixty-five to seventy oil right. by cutting supplies or something, the shale players become very effective. Absolutely. They will dump there, and also the renewable energy market, right. where the cost curve is dropping very fast. Right. They become affordable. Right, right. You so they're breathing time to further cut their costs so that when they take the oil costs further down, they have also improved their efficiency. Real dilemma. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the one thing that they have to focus on mm -hmm. is that is timeline. Mm -hmm. Right, they have to get this done very, very quickly, and I don't know if they have till twenty thirty mm -hmm. to be able to do that. You know, your point about the declining costs for you know renewables combined with. Uh, you know, uh, U.S. shale is going to continue to invest at sixty-five dollars mm -hmm. a barrel. Mm -hmm. It makes a lot of sense for U.S. companies to continue to invest in shale, not not offshore, not conventional, but to definitely invest in shale. Uh, and what that means is price of oil is going to fall, right? So the Saudis don't have a lot of time to get their agenda, uh, right. you know, executed. So there are two ways: either when the price is high, don't cut 
monetize it. Right, correct. Or, or you monetize over a longer period of time, keep the price high, monetize your company, Ramco, and invest into PIF. Right, right. So that's one. And plus, you know, as you were discussing in the earlier segment, uh, excess supply from U.S., restraint from China. Right. Beyond that, there's another equation into play, which you just mentioned about deficit. Right. Trade deficit between China and, and, and U.S. Right. There is a political relationship in the play now, in this agenda. Absolutely. That where China wants to play, because for China, yeah. the largest importer of his goods is U.S. Right, that's right. So how many barrels he can move from Saudi yeah. to U.S., where the shale players are in good play here? Right, will, will, will really matter. And, mm -hmm. and hence my point about there are so many variables in this equation, right? Yeah. And then how are the others going to react, right? Once... You know, how, how's Iraq going to react? How's mm -hmm. Iran going to react, right? What's the relationship between Iran and and Saudi? You know, clearly clearly the prince is in country uh, mm -hmm. this week, mm -hmm. and, uh, and he is lobbying to bring the Iranian sanctions back, right? He wants Iranian oil out, mm -hmm. uh, and that's meaningful. That's, mm -hmm. uh, I think, I think they're up to 4 million barrels a day now, and mm -hmm. that's meaningful um, enough to mm -hmm. stabilize the price of oil if that supply mm -hmm. actually uh, you know, comes offline. So, mm -hmm. yeah, the, the the moving pieces in this puzzle. Um, you know, I, I wish I spent more time. I could make a career out of <laughs> out of being a strategist in this game. But it is. It's such a sub. You now you look at it. Why uh, Saudi is advocating an overhaul of the Iran nuclear deal with Western powers? Yeah, it's trying to put some extra sanctions so that the supply is reduced in the marketplace, which otherwise they can't control. Iran. They will do what they want to do. Right. And and another piece which is in the play is uh, um, how do you see Saudi's initiative to go into expanding refining capacity? Like in China, they're putting it up. So go down the value chain. Like right. U.S. never used to export crude. Right. They would export the the, the further end of the value the chain. The refined products. Yeah. Refined product, more yeah. value into it. Right. So, so you know... Um, you know, as you point out, the Saudis have been investing in refining capacity uh, outside of Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. um, you know, clearly, for them to, you know, how do you make money, right? You make mm -hmm. money either by uh, by lifting crude from the ground. You know, mm -hmm. you drill for oil, find yeah. the oil, lift it out of the ground, and sell the crude oil. Correct. Or you make money by transporting crude oil midstream, mm -hmm. generally speaking. Mm -hmm. Or you make money by refining crude oil into usable mm -hmm. products. Right? Crude oil by itself is not usable, mm -hmm. uh, but but gasoline, diesel, aviation fuel, mm -hmm. uh, you know, feedstock into chemicals, you know, petrochemical mm -hmm. facilities, mm -hmm. uh, into plastics. There's there's a lot of different ways to make money. Right. In the, in the past, Saudis relied mostly on their upstream um, uh, business to make mm -hmm. money. Uh, and it's smart of them to think about, you know, expanding into downstream mm -hmm. uh, and into petrochemical and into other, um, you know, ways you can you can make money out of the oil value chain. Mm. So I think what it looks like, as, as we saw with Aramco being uh, considered as a sell-off part of it by yeah. Saudis, that um, there is a concern about peak oil. Right. And that is leading them to hedge their bets. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons they're looking at... Uh, you know, get rid of part of it so right. that you can put in different agenda. Yeah. Looks like in that part of the world, especially in the Middle East with their oil producers, they may have to focus not only on the cost of extraction, taking right. it down or something, but the social cost. But right. That's a big cost there. Yes. The social cost of oil because they're spending on social commitments. So let's say healthcare, yeah. education, public sector employment. Right. Now, what, what would you do? 
because you have to balance the budget. Where do you get that money? So you have to balance the cost that side also. Absolutely. Not only in the extraction of oil. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, things like income taxes, right, which weren't heard of, are now becoming reality because uh, the Saudis need to find other ways to fund their social contracts with their people, mm. um, and. Um, you know, one of the you know one of the things that they were excited about when I visited um, Saudi in December was the fact that they want to create a manufacturing base, mm-hmm. right? They want to they want to create which would be very interesting um, a military industrial complex, right? They mm-hmm. want to invest in manufacturing um, mm-hmm. you know weapons and manufacturing mm-hmm. ammunition and mm-hmm. um, you know I'm mean, clearly thinking potentially like America did in the early part of the 20th century. Perfect, Santosh. Interesting discussion. We will continue in the next segment. We'll take a short break. you've seen everything there is to see in online television let us surprise you visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports health business and more on demand 24 7 Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to Global Business with Mahesh Joshi, and we are having very interesting discussion with Santos today here in Houston about, we started with, is it end of oil? But we have gone into a few very important subjects like the dilemma being faced by the king of oil, Saudi Arabia, and uh, what's going to happen with oil. So let's move on, Santosh. I want to bring uh, another angle into play. That is attack on the internal combustion engine with the battery technologies coming in and all that. So let's see in this segment, what is the future of internal combustion engine and the resulting impact on oil? Because they consume oil. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, another one of my favorite topics, Mahesh, as you know, I'm a mechanical engineer and, uh, you know, and a car nut. And, you know, the bigger the engine, the more more, uh, the horsepower, the better. Consume more oil. (laughs) Consume more oil, right? And, you know, I've driven some really big uh, engines in my life. You know, what most impressed me recently was I drove an electric car. I drove a Tesla. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Tesla X is, in fact, the fastest accelerating car that's in production on the planet. Right? So even a gearhead like me is impressed with the capabilities of um, electric cars. Right? From just a performance angle, right? Um, In terms of... Um, you know, if you, if you were to think about it as a manufacturer of electric cars, if you were to think about it as uh, a company that services automobiles, mm-hmm. um, you know, simple things like the number of moving parts in a car, mm-hmm. right, dramatically reduced. It is, it is, you know, something like 20,000 down to 20 kind of numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so the, the implications of uh, for internal combustion engines is severe, right? And um, you know, I, look, I, w while I hate to see um, you know uh, oil-fired cars go, I'm sure I'll keep some in my collection just for just for fun. Um, <laughs> But the reality is um, th there is real disruption going on in transportation. It's not just about cars. It's mm -hmm. about transportation generally mm -hmm. that, that will have a severe impact on oil. You know, there are, there are folks out there uh, that claim that you know, uh, demand for oil, which is roughly around 100 million barrels right now, will likely go per day, mm -hmm. will likely go up to 102, 103, no more than 110 barrels, but it's going to fall to you know, probably 70, 75% of that. Right, that, that's a major fall. Mm. And as you rightly said, you see the difference in two cars. So as you said, the quick acceleration. Yep. So the point of energy, the oil going into engine, to the point of transmission of that energy into workable energies of wheel. Right. So how many moving parts? Right. The, the loss says, right. if we calculate yep. the energy carried by that oil versus what the wheels got right. would be way below oh, than the battery straight into the wheel kind yep. of stuff. The conversion through electric motor, fast, quick, clean, yeah. and max. So yeah. basically you're more efficient. A absolutely, and efficiency that. is a key here, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, uh, as an engineer yourself, Carnot cycle kind of dictates the mm -hmm. limit of uh, engine efficiency, right? And it's in the 60% range, 64 mm -hmm. something like that. Whereas electric motors are in the high 90s, mm -hmm. right? And without any transmission losses because you can bolt the electric motors directly to the wheels and control mm -hmm. uh, speed through mm -hmm. a variable frequency drive. So Exactly. Um, yeah, absolutely. And um, it, is, it is high tech. You can do a lot more with it mm -hmm. like enabling uh, you know, driverless vehicles, automated mm -hmm. vehicles, much easier to do with electric vehicle than it is with uh, mm -hmm. with uh, gasoline-fired vehicles. Mm -hmm. So let, let's look at this also. What you said, the the collapse, uh, not rather reduction yeah. in the oil consumption, that the demand will drop from say 100 million per barrel by up to 25, 30 percent. If you extrapolate the numbers, the price. Sure. It will fall close to between twenty-five to thirty dollars a barrel. Yeah, if now, that, that's devastating yeah. for a lot of countries right. whose production cost is more than that. If they don't improve the efficiency, plus more so for the countries who rely on that oil with the social cost right. included in it, which they will not be able to recover. Cover, yeah. Now, having gone through it, let's let's look at the transportation. That paper, even Mr. Tony Seva on disruption, he had presented when he says rethinking transportation. Yeah. So now. If you if you look at what he says, that we are at the cusp of one of the fastest, deepest, and most consequential disruption of transportation in the history. Right. He's been so so emphatic about it, and what his assumptions are, that if the regulatory approvals for autonomous vehicles yep. comes in by 2020, say for example, by yep. 2030 in 10 years. 95% of U.S. passenger miles traveled will be served by on-demand autonomous electric vehicle owned by fleet, not individuals. Right. And that's a huge change that you're not even owning. It's owned by somebody, and like Uber. No, no, the, Uber doesn't own it. People yeah. own it. So there could be a very different business model, what he's calling it as transport as a service. Right. And transport as a service is a very interesting uh, concept. And I think it's real, right? I mean, it's and this has happened. Mm. Uh, think about computing, right? We all owned our own computer. 
computers. We all own right. mainframes at one time, and then from right. those mainframes we went to, uh, you know, personal computers. From yeah. personal computers we went to laptops. From yeah. laptops we've gone to, you know, a digital assistants, so to speak. Uh, and all the storage and computing is happening in the cloud. Cloud, yeah. Right? It's so it's a service simply, uh, at yes, this point, yeah. right? Nobody owns a big computer at home anymore, right? Yeah. If you do, yeah. uh, and certainly not businesses, you know, yeah. all of your computing. My, my business, we transitioned to the cloud yeah. about five years ago, right? Yeah. There, there was there was a notion that, you know, you had to control your own hardware, you had mm-hmm. to control your own memory, no need and now. that there were security yeah. implications. No more. That business mm-hmm. model's been figured out, right? Mm-hmm. Similarly with cars, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I told you I'm a gearhead. You know, I, own, <laughs> I own many cars, uh-huh. but guess what? I find myself taking Uber mm. uh, at least half the time I need transportation. There you go. Right? W- what does that mean? That means mm. that, li- like me, I'm sure for most people, mm. you don't start your car but maybe, you know, 5% of the time. That is very true. Right? It's not more than that. Right. And so it's the second most costliest item normally in a household after the house. A- absolutely. So why would you invest in, uh, in an asset that you're mm. only going to utilize Actually, let me phrase it differently, that you're mm-hmm. not going to utilize, that you're going to waste mm-hmm. 95% of the time. Correct. Yeah, right. it's sitting idle. Either you're in office or at home, car is just sitting somewhere. Right. So if you, if yeah. you expand that to, to mm-hmm. say, the number of cars sold in the U.S., right, mm-hmm. uh, something like 16 million cars a year, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and let's assume 95% of that 16 million is sitting waste. Mm-hmm. And let's, figure, let's assume that people figure out how not to waste 95%. Right? Let's mm-hmm. say you cut that by half. Mm-hmm. Right? Let's say you're only wasting 50%. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. That that means you go from 16 million cars a year to 8 million cars a year in the right. US like immediately. Correct. Think Correct. about the implications yeah. for General Motors and Ford and Chrysler. Absolutely. And they're Toyota. not guzzling any oil now. Exactly. Mm. And that disruption can come not from automotive industry. If they don't do it now, because it'll be very difficult for them to do their setting their processes. It'll be coming with somebody like Tesla or what Airbnb did to hotel industry. Absolutely. Or Uber right. did to the taxi guys. Yeah. So disruption by its very nature doesn't come from within. It comes mm-hmm. from outside, right? And uh, and clearly the boys in Silicon Valley, boys and ladies in Silicon Valley are figuring out different ways, right? Mm-hmm. Uber is a first step towards that, mm-hmm. right? What Uber is missing in mm-hmm. terms of transportation as a service mm-hmm. are twofold. One is its reliance on drivers. Right, which which we know through automation. You, you mentioned that earlier through autonomous vehicles, mm-hmm. through approvals. Let's say in 2020, 2021. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not going to take a lot of time before mm-hmm. it gets accepted. The second bit is uh, reliable power. Mm-hmm. Right, um, electric vehicles like we discussed earlier are actually easier mm-hmm. to operate autonomously, but mm-hmm. it's also got its own challenges, as mm-hmm. in battery storage. Right, so that's that the storage problem needs to be solved. You know, if you were to assume that. Uh, you know, going back to our efficiency, you know, if we were to assume that we're going to mm-hmm. go down to 8 million cars, those 8 million cars will have to work at least twice as hard as the uh, 16 million cars are working, which means you need a reliable way of driving 500 to 1,000 miles on one charge, mm-hmm. or you need to figure out a way to make real-time charging happen while, while the vehicle is actually running. Right, right. Now, if, if you see the math of it, yeah. exactly for what you said, suppose this change happened. So some of the research on TAS says that the average American family, if that happens, will save more than $5,600 per year yeah. in just transportation costs. Yeah. And that is almost the 10% of equivalent wage, of average wage. Absolutely, yeah. And this, by another calculation, tells you that this will keep an additional $1 trillion dollars per year in Americans' pocket by 2030. Absolutely. And that's the potential in a, in a capitalistic society, that's a consumer spending created. 
That's the largest by one move you could create in the history. Yeah, and and there are so many reasons why that can be disruptive, right? I think yeah. those numbers, I believe, are are solid, right? Yeah. Uh, in fact, I think the fifty six hundred dollars is probably light. You know, uh-huh. I would I would suspect that, mm-hmm. you know, if you include. Uh, other forms of transportation, right? Public transportation, for instance, you know, currently run by buses that run on diesel. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you were to include trains, if you were to include um, planes, mm-hmm. um, that that number is likely light, right? Mm-hmm. Think about so most people that buy a car today don't buy cash, right? They 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 finance it. Correct. Think about the implication yeah, for then banks. It much bigger, yeah. Yeah. Think about the implications for banks and yeah. finance companies, right? Think about yeah. the implications for less than half the cars that are being produced today will be produced tomorrow, right? Mm-hmm. For the entire supply chain mm-hmm. of the automotive industry. If I remember correctly, something like three percent of the U.S. Uh, GDP is driven by automotive and their sub-tier suppliers and all the associated businesses, gas stations, for instance, mm-hmm. right? Clearly, we're talking about oil. Mm-hmm. So gas stations then go back to drilling equipment and yeah. number of... You know, charging stations charging something st- else. Yeah. yeah, so the disruption is going to be tremendous. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, the, the, I, I read somewhere the other day that even charging stations will likely disappear because people are testing ways of inductively charging a car by laying inductive cables so on when, highways. So when you're driving, you're charging yourself. Exactly. When you're driving, you're charging. When you're parked, you're charging. Because, you know, it's, it's uh, as you as you That's know. That's like trams you see in Europe. You have overhead wires. Yeah, you don't even <laughs> need. Power yeah, you don't even need that, yeah. right? If yeah, you think about. Inductive. That's inductive. You think about cell, yeah. cell phones today, right? Yeah, you, know, you don't need to plug it. a cell phone anymore. You just yeah, have to yeah. bring it in close contact, in close proximity, and, yeah. and it gets charged. Yeah, so it is super exciting. Again, I'm going to miss you know, the big V8s, the big American <laughs> muscle cars, but yeah. um, hey, the, the opportunity out there is just mind-boggling. Yeah, but if you look at uh, what has happened with Uber yeah. and Lyft, so they can provide a task platform, they can yeah. if they want to, but similarly in China, uh, Didi, uh, they reduce the price of ride right. from taxis and others, yeah. and they, the, the level of service started increasing, they just gave the platform. And if AVs come in, mm-hmm. this intensity of competition may increase further. Absolutely, you know, if you if you if you go back to the two points I made, one about drivers, mm-hmm. and uh, the second about storage, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the driver problem can be solved, right? Mm-hmm. Because autonomous vehicles are already being tested. So utilize, utilization rate will be very high. Now. Will be very high. Yeah. You don't have to wait on a driver yeah. to wake up. Uh, so there are other clear implications, right? Mm-hmm. So today, Uber and Lyft are owned by individuals, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the assets are owned by individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, what Uber and Lyft have done are, have created a platform, mm-hmm. right, enabled by technology mm-hmm. that allows for a ready call of mm-hmm. a driver who's close by, mm-hmm. right? If you don't need a driver, first of all, you're saving drivers' wages, mm-hmm. right? So what is that? You know, somewhere between 40 and 60K a mm-hmm. year, mm-hmm. Uh, you're saving automatically per car. Right, that's right, huge right. savings, right? Uh, because the technology that's going to be needed to replace a driver is mm-hmm. going to be nowhere near that expensive. Yeah, and if you look at another way, yeah. a total cost which you yeah. talked about, so lower maintenance. Right, that's number one. Right, the energy cost. Right, the cost of financing. You right, need insurance cost. Right. And if you compare this for a car you're owning, now you look at uh, transport as a service, it can be very low. And as per one calculation, this it could be four to ten times cheaper per mile yeah. than buying a new car, and two to four times cheaper than operating an existing vehicle in as close as 2021. Absolutely. So, so another way to look at it, right? If you think about the value, you know, you talked about. Um, disruption versus distraction, right? Mm-hmm. If you think about the value that 
you know disruptors bring today, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like Facebook, like WhatsApp. Um, the the consumer gets all of that value for free. True. Right. That's a very valid point. Right. So it's not it's not uh, you know unthinkable mm-hmm. that the rides could be free, mm-hmm. generally funded by people advertising or selling something else. Yeah, or data monetization. Data monetization. We're getting data there. Right. Well, that's a great uh, piece of information, Santosh. We will take a short break now, and we'll continue after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Welcome back. You're listening to Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. Uh, we are having uh, very intriguing discussions about uh, a very important subject. Is it the end of oil? Seems like a lot of moving pieces. Seems like a lot of stuff working against the growth of oil, rather a uh, lot supporting the decline in oil. So we are at the last segment, and uh, Santosh, we were discussing about the AV vehicles and uh, the role of that on the economy and productivity and all that. Uh, let's look at what, what could be the possible barriers to uh, the tasks. So, so we talked about, you know, look, uh, transportation as a service, we talked about all the reasons why it is possible and mm-hmm. a couple of barriers, which were, uh, you know, both tec- technology-related barriers. But then there are other barriers, right? A, a gearhead like me loves to drive a, yeah. a, 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 a car, right? And, yeah. you know, and my suspicion is most young boys growing up, one of the first things they want to do, they get excited about doing, mm-hmm. is driving, you know, a nice muscle car of some sort. Um, as as uh, transportation as a service takes hold, uh, our driving skills are going to disappear, right? That's a good one. You yeah. know, when, when when we were kids, I used mm. to remember telephone numbers of every customer of mine in my head. Mm. Today, I don't even remember the telephone number of my own house because it's it's you on my it. cell phone, yeah. right? Um, yeah, similarly, a lot of skills are going to disappear, yeah. right? Uh, so, but also, mm-hmm. uh, there are some real implications for uh, things like infrastructure. So barriers would be mm-hmm. people are afraid, right? So one of the things, even as an engineer, I fear about aut- autonomous vehicles is would they have the intelligence, the artificial mm-hmm. intelligence, mm-hmm. to make the decisions that an average driver does today, right? Driving mm-hmm. is clearly a very complex activity. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are going to be afraid mm-hmm. of autonomous vehicles. So fear is something we'll need to overcome. Mm-hmm. Um, love of driving, like I said, and, and habit, and having the security of having your own vehicle, right? Mm-hmm. In the event of some major calamity, <coughs> mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. let's say there's a grid breaks down or the GPS satellites fail for some reason, autonomous vehicles are going to just you know, yeah. um, sit still. They're not going to move you anywhere, right? Correct. So those would likely be the barriers. Mm-hmm. It's like natural calamities. Right. 
So we live in a coastal area here. Yeah. When there's an evacuation route, open go. Yeah. How do you find your AV? I'm not saying it happens every day. Yeah. But whenever it happens. Yeah. But overall, it looks like with those barriers, um, the there are a lot of a lot of positives around it. Absolutely. Like in economics, it's a positive. It's it's, it's contributing to uh, job growth throughout the economy in an indirect term. Correct. Because there'll be more consumption economy triggering through it by the savings. So household will have more con- disposable income. That's one. There'll be a productivity gain. Right. Now you're not driving. You're not right. stressed. And you can use that time to do some creative thinking or whatever you want to do, you're not driving. Absolutely, yeah. You're in good shape. And also the availability of real estate. If you don't have... You don't need so many roads, so much of traffic. Yeah, we, we talked about in the last segment, right? Yeah. I mean, if you're if you're going to assume that car, the number of cars is going to fall because yeah. the utilization per car is going to is going to go high, uh-huh. uh, you know, it is not inconceivable to think that you know we'll only need um, half the cars, perhaps right. a third of the cars on the road that we have today, yeah. right? Think about. Uh, the implications for highways, right? Mm-hmm. You don't need anywhere near. In fact, you could likely claim some of the highways back. Mm-hmm. Now, albeit the highways will have to be high tech. I'm sure mm-hmm. the highways will have sensors of all sorts. You know, we talked about inductive charging. Mm-hmm. So the highways are going to be potentially more expensive per mile, mm-hmm. but the number of miles of highways are going to be substantially reduced, I would think, uh, because, you know, efficiency is going to be uh, improved tremendously. Right. So I think uh, basically the cost of mobility, if we call that way, will be much lower. Absolutely. Using this because you're not investing capital into it, no insurance, nothing like it. Yeah, and, and potentially for the for the user, for the consumer, mm-hmm. you know, like we discussed in the last segment, it could be free, mm-hmm. right? Because somebody else would be happy to, if you're willing to listen to some ads, yeah. would be happy to provide you that two miles of what we today use Uber for, for free. Yeah. And, and the other piece which you see is the environmental impact. Yeah. So it will... It will give a huge, huge boost to the climate change people. Right, to the uh, green movement. Green movement, yeah. and it's good for human beings. Yeah, and generally it's good it's for, helpful, look, helpful even, for even, even as a Republican, as you pointed out earlier, yeah. right, um, you know, um, clearly we want to leave behind yeah. um, a world that is substantially greener. Now, so, you know, to, to ask your question, to answer your question, is it the end of oil? Yeah. Uh, I'm not certain it's the end of oil, yeah. right? but what, what is clear is that mm-hmm. there is major disruption that's likely going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some people might argue that uh, that uh, Mr. Saber's 2030 vision is probably too aggressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, the question is about timing, right? I mean, yeah. you know, um, can we get all of, will all of this happen by 2030 or mm-hmm. will it take till 2050? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, clearly when we go into the 22nd century, I'm sure that will, you know, uh, oil and the reliance on oil and particularly transportation mm. and its reliance on oil is going to look nothing like today. Correct, correct. Then, you know, the, the, the trend is evident, the way it's yeah. happening. The trajectory is building yeah. and now with the speed of disruption, that their regulations also has a role. Absolutely. And how fast it happens and many times disruptions go very quickly. But definitely the geopolitical impact will be huge. Right. It looks like if it goes down to the what the forecast is from 100 uh, million barrels per day to 70 or 75, that will reduce the geopolitical impact of oil big time. And the, and the collapse in, in oil revenue for right. some of the countries who are dependent on, on fossil fuel generation only or the reserves, that will be a very uh, major one and it could create 
a different kind of geopolitical risks for those countries. Mm -hmm. And on the positive side, then there will be uh, somebody coming up as a Saudi Arabia of lithium. Right. If then can be, but maybe not, because maybe it's a spread out commodity which you can get from various places. Yeah, so lithium is clearly, you know, a storage. You know, we yeah. talked about storage earlier. Lithium, lithium ion are, yeah. you know, supposed to, you know, they, they are a major source of today's uh, power storage. Yeah. I know it could be lithium, the lithium industry would also get disrupted, right? Yeah. Uh, there are clearly benefits today and in the foreseeable future there isn't a better method of storing mm -hmm. that doesn't really use lithium mm -hmm. uh, but you're right you know uh, South American countries are likely going to get some power right mm -hmm. Chile I believe is the world's largest producer of lithium today right yeah. and followed by Argentina yeah. China US yeah. Um, yeah so the power is going to shift from the Middle East right. uh, likely to Latin America right yes. and that's got its own implications absolutely and you saw you gave a very good example of Venezuela yeah so now if you look at it the geopolitics of oil is one and then the impact on individual states. Yeah. And now, definitely Venezuela was more autocratic, yeah. but in such states where the social commitments are there, when they break their bargain with people, yeah. what happens? They, they, they have economic turmoil, right. they have social instability, they create a lot of regional yeah. tensions. It's the matter, you know, it's, it's what creates revolutions. Right. Exactly. So, so basically, it looks like uh, uh, the geopolitics of oil, because of what's happening, the the self-reliance uh, on oil at, in U.S. because of increased production, less requirement from China, renewable energies, clean energies thing coming into play, is definitely looking like. Uh, creating a new kind of geopolitics where oil may not have a major role yeah. unless something changes dramatically and uh, the national politics and national statutes of some of the countries which have total reliance on oil may change dramatically. Right. So Santosh, thank you so much. It was a very fascinating discussion. Thank you so much. <laughs>